I think that what appeals to me about marketing, what still holds true and why I think it works so well for me is that it's, it's a mix of science and art. Today, we're exploring the realm of marketing with a B2B strategist who's been pioneering the field for over 20 years. As the CMO of LivePerson, she's redefined marketing standards. From Toronto, please welcome the mastermind of marketing and brand growth, Ruth Sive. I'm your host, Bianca Mayer, and this is the Design Rush Podcast. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us today. Really, uh, it's much appreciated. Um, so just starting off, I want to talk a little bit more about your background and career. Um, so you've also had a quite, you've had quite the run in marketing. Um, how did you end up as the CMO of Live Person? And when did you figure out that marketing was your thing? Yeah, uh, I'm still not sure marketing is my thing. <laughs> you know, it's a journey. You've got to keep an open mind. But I think like a lot of marketers, it didn't follow an expected path necessarily. I did a master's of social work. I worked in nonprofit for about a decade doing mostly fundraising uh, and marketing. And I always knew, well, I was always told, let's say that I was a, a good writer. And so while I was in my nonprofit job, um, a colleague of mine in the software world reached out and asked if I would do some freelance writing for them. And I started doing that and I, I more so caught the software bug. I was very enamored with the fast pace of software and the energy and excitement around it. And so I stopped working in the nonprofit world and got sucked into the world of B2B enterprise SaaS. Um, I had my own agency for a while uh, and most of my customers were software technology customers and then eventually ended up in-house in, in a leadership role, not as CMO, but in-house at, at one of my clients and pretty quickly through a, a set of unexpected circumstances made my way to the CMO spot. Um, so not, it's not, I definitely didn't set out to be a CMO. That wasn't like a mission or a thoughtful, um, exercise that I undertook. I think that what appeals to me about marketing, what still holds true and why I think it works so well for me is that it's, it's a mix of science and art. And, um, I over index, I think on the science side, I love that today digital marketing in particular is you know, data informed and metrics driven. We can measure everything. I love that. It's very validating to know that your investments are paying off. Um, yeah. But then I also love the creative. I still have that writing sensibility and that appreciation for storytelling. Um, and so, you know, I love that you can move people or make them laugh. And so, so I think that's for me what really works in marketing. And then, of course, I'm still in tech and uh even though live person is not a startup it has that startup dna that it's very fast-paced very nimble um and and i love that i love that you can you know take big swings and iterate and uh it's it's exciting to market in that kind of environment exactly and i think one of the most important things that you also just mentioned is like there's a really nice balance between being creative and having like the scientific sort of aspect to it and like having so much data into it. I, I mean, I think it just 
scratches both itches of either side of your brain as well. So that's that's also that's one of the right. things that I really love about marketing as well. That's um, right. So look, uh, over the past 10 years, what have been the big game, ch game changers in marketing? Um, and how did you roll with those changes? Yeah, I mean, it's very, like I said, fast moving um, in the tech space, but certainly marketing in general. You know, I think I'm old enough that I remember, you know, buying ads and, you know, th that being a primary strategy for marketing. Um, and I think that's all changed everything so much. The vast majority of what we do today is very digital. Um, especially in B2B enterprise SaaS. And, and I think the ultimate game cha changer goes back to what I said before, that it can all be measured. You know, you ha used to have to do a lot of uh, market research and surveying to understand the impact of your investment. But today you can just look at the metrics, the click-through rates, the conversion rates, the, you know, everything is kind of cookied and although that's changing, but um, you're still able to really measure what you do. And I think that allows us to make smarter, better decisions about how we invest, what we invest. Um, so I think for me, that was the biggest game changer. And right about when I decided to move out of nonprofit and into this world of tech is when all of that was really moving. Um, and that that's what was exciting to me. And I think that's completely disrupted the game. And of course, Today, even as recently as six months ago, we saw the entire world disrupted with, you know, the the with generative AI coming onto the market in a frenzy. And I, I think AI will be a massive unlock. Um, you know, you think about uh, the Internet of 20, 25 years ago and how that changed the game. And, and I think this is similar and I think we're going to see really excited we're at the very beginning right now and I think with my team a lot about how we integrate this technology into our day-to-day -day. but I think that will that will be a major major game player so now before live person you were with blueprint software systems and ADA um, plus a whole bunch of other top roles um, how would you say those gigs shape the way that you're handling things at live person now so Blueprint and Ada were, were both earlier stage startups when I joined and LivePerson when I joined was an established, you know, 25 year old public company. Um, but I took a lot of learnings from those early experiences and brought them to, to Blueprint, to LivePerson. I think, you know, what I learned when you're when you're dealing with resource constraints and small teams and massive goals and targets, you learn how to be very nimble, uh, how to operate in sort of a flat environment, how to be very decisive um, and how to turn to the data to iterate swiftly. And I think that uh, when I joined LivePerson, there, there was so much good there. That was really the draw, incredible customers, incredible people, an unbelievable product. But there was also a lot of process. And um, in some cases, a lot of unnecessary process. And so I think I've tried to you know, flatten the process, simplify the process, simplify the goals and targets, clear the, uh, articulate what those are with clarity and assign to them measurable outcomes so that everybody sort of understands what we're chasing. And, and that's a very startup-y kind of muscle to flex. 
So I think that's what I brought to the table at Live Person. Um, and of course, we have to do that at scale because the numbers are bigger, the teams are bigger, the product is bigger. Um, so I, I think that those were the biggest lessons learned. I learned a lot in those two experiences as well about building high performing teams. And one of the more gratifying parts of my job as a CMO is building high performing teams, helping people to learn and stretch and to get outside of their comfort zone. Um, and so I, I'm really grateful for those experiences and, and I hope that I'm bringing the best of those experiences to what it is I'm doing with my team at Live Person. So uh, in saying that, what would you say are like the three top things uh, a person in your position would need to do to develop a high performing team? So I, I'm not an HR executive and or expert, um, but I have been managing teams for a long time. And there are, there are certain principles that I hold dear um, as I manage my team. So if I'm thinking of the top three, um, I think the first is that everyone needs to operate with clarity on what it is they're trying to accomplish. And I believe wholeheartedly in setting objectives along with measurable key results. You know, you hear a lot about OKRs. I absolutely believe in that. But I think they have to be really, really simple and clear and persistent so that you're not changing them every two months, that they don't um, devolve into lists of dozens and dozens and dozens of objectives and key results. I think, you know, I with my team, I work with three ultimate outcomes that we're trying to drive quarter to quarter. They're all kind of pipeline and brand related, but we've got three overarching objectives. So I think that's really critical in managing people and building alignment across a high performing team is clarity around your objectives. Um, I think an, another one is that you want to always hire people that are in some ways better and more expert than you are. Um, I'm such a better marketer with people on my team reporting to me who are experts and then you have to trust them to, if, if you're hiring the expert trust them to do the job now you know I, I am i know enough to be dangerous for instance on the seo front but i'm not an seo expert for instance i have an seo expert on my team and i'm trusting him to do his job so that would be number two Number three, though, would be is that you have to always roll up your sleeves and get on the front line a little bit in order that you can be credible when you're having those conversations with your direct reports. You can't hold somebody accountable if you don't have a baseline understanding of the job that you're asking them to do. So th those would be the three things that I would say. So you've also dabbled a lot within marketing. So from like brand growth marketing to business development, which is the one that gets you most excited and why? Ah. Uh, you know, you gravitate usually toward what you're good at. Like, I think that's just like a normal human, you know, characteristic. And so what I'm better at is um, uh, demand. So that measurable inbound function is, is kind of what I really understand and the math behind it and the logic behind it. And so 
you know, I, I always feeling badly for the head of my demand team because I ping him the most and drive him the most crazy because it's his world that I understand the best. And then I would say a close second would be on the content side. I'm a writer that's very much in my DNA. I have strong opinions about writing. And so I drive that team probably as nuts, if not more nuts. If they're listening to this podcast, they're nodding their heads like, you know, enthusiastically. But what gets me excited is actually what I don't know and understand. And, you know, I didn't have a lot of experience, any experience really the first time I took on the BDR function or product marketing or, you know, marketing operations at some level or pricing and packaging. Like there are, I'm always excited by the new and the unfamiliar. That's what's really, I think, allowed me to move into an executive position is an open-mindedness and curiosity about what I'm not necessarily good at and what isn't familiar because that's what's allowed me to stretch and grow. That's, that's a really good point as well. Um, so look, you've also partnered with a mix of businesses from like tech and finance to nonprofits, as you mentioned before as well. Um, does your marketing game change based on the industry that you're working with? I think in all three roles as CMO, we I've taken a bit of a, a go to an industry first, go to market approach. Um, And that can drive a real sense of focus from a storytelling perspective, because how your product and or your services are going to resonate within retail, for instance, is going to be very different than how they resonate inside of financial services. And so you have to be ready as a marketer to tell the story that's going to resonate. And having an industry orientation allows you to do that. But but. I think it depends on the product. Um, I think it depends on the product, the competitive landscape. Um, There are a lot of different variables that would inform whether or not I took an industry first go-to-market approach. In the last three companies that I've worked for, it's made sense. Sometimes though, we go to market with an industry agnostic perspective. But I do find sometimes it's easier and more resonant if you take into consideration the needs and interests of the industry, because then you can really tailor your entire marketing engine in a way that it's almost like um, if you think about account-based marketing, industry-specific marketing is maybe not a one-to-one account-based marketing approach, but it is a one-to-many targeted approach that allows you to be more effective and surgical in how you invest your dollars. So you've also got a reputation as an evidence-based revenue champ. Um, So mind diving into some of the tactics that you've used to boost revenue over the years. Yeah, so I think that, you know, it's important for so many reasons to be evidence-based and, you know, or data-informed, however you want to, however you want to define it. One is that you know, it's, it's, it allows you to invest more thoughtfully um, based on facts. You know, a lot of, like I said, marketing is part art, part science, but you don't want to make those investments just on feelings. And a lot of marketers will agree with this. People tend to weigh in on marketing strategy and tactic with their gut feeling. People outside of marketing within the organization, often the CEO will have a feeling about what the story is that we should tell or, you know, what the what the website should look like. There's a lot of opinion and feeling that goes into marketing and marketing needs to be the expert and expertise is often validated through the data, you know, that, that we should be making the decision because the data tells us 
that this is true. So I think that's one reason to be evidence-based. It builds credibility. It's not always easy to do though as a marketer. And, um, you know, I'll give you an example, brand. So, so demand is very easy to validate through the data. Brand is not necessarily, but I push my team hard to uh, surface data points that will inform our strategies. So branded keyword clicks, for instance, are a leading indicator of brand awareness, people searching for your company. If they're searching for your company, they must have some measure of brand awareness. And so we track that and measure that as a leading indicator of brand awareness. And all of this needs to ladder up to, to revenue outcomes. So you can't actually connect the dots and build the math model to revenue targets if you're not using the data to inform the plan. So um, when you ask like, how do I drive the revenue outcomes? Well, it's based on the data and the math and it's the dots have to connect. It's an equation really at the end of the day, it's leads yeah. to meetings, to pipeline, to you know, pipeline progression to conversion. And because this is all very measurable, um, the data should ultimately inform the revenue plan. So that was a bit of rambling, but hopefully that gives you a sense of how I think about the data and building the revenue plan. Actually, I was going to say that that was very eloquently put. Um, it was <laughs> Thank very, you. very well put. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and definitely points to keep in mind for sure. On the other hand, then, do you have any pro tips using marketing analytics to craft killer strategies? Well, I would say at the start of every fiscal year, certainly at the start of every quarter, start, you know, the, the, the whole plan needs to be informed by the revenue targets. Um, and there are a variety of ways to break those down. Um, but then you figure out how much pipeline do you need to cover those revenue targets? Um, sure. And then you figure out how many leads do you need in order to build that pipeline? Um, so it starts with that math model at the highest level. And then once you have the math model built, then you start to figure out what are the assets that we need to, you know, to plug into that model? What are the channels that we're going to leverage to push out those assets that are going to plug into that model? And then you associate the costs. So um, that that's kind of how I start the year and my team starts the quarter is that we build out the spreadsheets based on that model um, and uh, everything ultimately ladders up to those revenue outcomes. So a pro tip would be start with start with the math model, like use the data as the starting point. Don't just, you know, do an event for the sake of an event. I say to my team all the time, if sales is asking you to take on a new initiative and, and by the way, I very much believe that marketing's job is to service sales, to provide them with pipeline, to cover their number. But sales will often ask for a lot of things based on their own gut feelings. Um, and we need to hold everyone accountable to the pipeline outcomes of those investments. So I will often say, okay, great. They want to do this webinar or this event or create this asset. How much pipeline are they signing up to generate once we've, once we've delivered for them? Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. So uh, I was also just going to say that that spreadsheet that you guys hit up must be worth gold. Um, honestly, we, so, we come back to it regularly. <laughs> yeah, sure. Exactly. Um, so, so as we know, and getting back to a little bit of AI, um, obviously that's been like the talk of the town, especially over the last half year. Um, what discussions do you think we need to have about AI's potential pitfalls? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a, a very loaded question. We could spend another hour on just that. Uh, we talk about that a lot at Live Person. Um, I host a podcast, uh, Generation AI, where we talk about that a lot. Um, but I'll say this, it's been fascinating the last six to nine months. You know, I think everybody understands that this technology is going to change the world. I, I don't think there's any disputing that. But what's also happened is that people have come a little bit back down to earth, I believe, and there's some trepidation and people are sort of taking a beat and they're like, wait a minute, I, I know this is important. I need to understand it. It will probably eventually be something that I'm using, but I'm not yet ready to make a big, massive investment. You know, I, I, I want to take some thoughtful baby steps and that's where I think the, the temperature is right now. And what we feel at live person is that, you know, based on our market and the customers that we serve and we serve very large, um, enterprise brands. And I think that our, our point of view is that it's the AI is important. Generative AI is important, but ultimately it's about the conversation. People communicate through conversation. Relationships are built through conversations. Brands build loyalty with their customers and grow their base of prospects through conversations. And before the availability of this technology, it was hard for brands to sustain the volume of conversation that they needed to engage in a meaningful way. You know, instead, customers are put on hold. They're meant to wait or they receive, you know, email tickets with a note that they'll be followed up in three days, or they have to wait in lines in person to return something. It's very hard for brands to scale and sustain a level of intimacy through conversation, but that's all changed. Generative AI really unlocks that opportunity in a meaningful way and allows brands to have these conversations if they're using the right vendor safely and thoughtfully at scale. And that's really what live person um, is allowing their, their customers to do, that they can take those baby steps in a safe and thoughtful way, because we know that this technology is new. It can hallucinate. There are ethical considerations. There are compliance considerations. So everybody wants to dip their toe and they want to be set up to succeed long-term. They want to be able to scale conversations in a meaningful way, but they want to do it safely and responsibly. So, so I, that's how we're thinking about it, a live person. Hundred percent. That actually, yeah, that's that's a really good way to put it as well. So, um, okay, let's just circle a little bit more to your current role and the projects that you're working on, or have been working on. So, it's been as a year since you hopped on board with Live Person as a CMO. Um, have you had any standout moments or hurdles so far? Well, there's no doubt that the emergence of generative AI just shook the world. And we happened to operate in, like we were about AI before this happened. Our customers were using our platform to build automations, you know, before OpenAI or these other uh, generative AI vendors came on the scene. Um, so I think what happened for us is that a lot of what we were already talking about, a lot of what we were working on with our customers suddenly became part of, you know, the, the, the main mainstream uh, narrative and everybody, everybody from my, you know, I've said this before from my 
19 year old son to my 75 year old mother suddenly became aware of the power of AI. So on the one hand, as a marketer, that was an opportunity for us because we no longer had to explain what we do or, you know, convince people that this was an opportunity. Everybody was, there was a watershed of inbound interest um, to learn more about this very powerful, uh, you know, game-changing technology. But I think on the other hand, like I said, everyone's sort of come back down to earth. So as a marketer, now the challenge is how do we how do we really talk about business outcomes? How do we validate for our customers that these are important investments? Um, and how do we reassure them that amidst all of the noise and the hype that we are going to deliver something that they can feel very comfortable with? So I think it's a bit of a, a you know, a, an, an exciting opportunity, but a challenge on the flip side as well as a marketer. But overall, um, it's been an incredibly, incredibly exciting time to be a marketer in this space. So I'm really grateful for this year. It's been, it's been a lot of... Um, I don't want to say chaos because that sounds bad, uh, but it's not, it, it's not been boring. That's a good, it's been very exciting and interesting. Um, and, you know, a lot of shifting gears and learning and my team has been unbelievable. And I think generally at Live Person across the organization right now, there's better alignment and conviction than there's been since I joined truly. Truly, yeah. Okay, that's very cool. So, okay, as we've already established, obviously, Life Person is super big on AI-driven uh, conversational commerce. So, just to elaborate a little bit more on that, um, how do you sell? Like, is there a specific way that you sell that magic to potential clients? So many ways. So many ways. We want. I think one thing that is is important to us at Live Person, which generally is important as a marketer, is that we're very clear on, you know, what folks call your ideal customer profile. You know, we can't be all things to all people, and and I think that would water down the value of our platform. Really, our sweet spot is with very large, uh, in you know, regulated industries, um, large brands. Uh, often that have a massive footprint inside of a contact center and are very voice dependent. That's where yeah. we're really able to have the greatest impact. And so understanding our superpower and our strength and who our ideal customer profile is, is really the starting point for our go-to-market positioning and messaging. Um, you know, we've narrowed down our focus to some core verticals, retail, hospitality, financial services for sure, telco is another one, um, energy, but, and going to market, you know, specifically to those verticals. I think the more that we can be focused on our ideal customer profile, the more impactful our message, the more impactful our product. Um, so I think that's how we take this message to market is with that type of brand in mind versus, you know, more of a spray and pray approach for the masses. Um, so I think also this is a really good time to mention and just to say massive kudos to Live Person for snagging some super cool awards this year, especially that Golden Stevie or that Gold Stevie, right? Um, so I want to know how did marketing play into these wins? So you never, you know, market with an expectation that you're going to win awards. Um, I have a great PR team who helps to make sure that these awards are on our radar and that we're, you know, 
being considered when it makes sense. I think though the the greatest wins uh, are are very much a function of our customer relationships. We have unbelievable customers. Really, the world's biggest and most beloved brands are our customers. That again was a big draw for me when I joined Live Person. It's a testament to the strength of our platform and the authenticity of our people. Um, and I think. You know, at the end of the day, that's what really drives the awards that we've received is the success that we've been able to deliver for our customers. Um, so, you know, awards are always great, but as a marketer, I've said this before, the most gratifying thing is hearing from our customers about how we've made their experiences better and the value that we've delivered to them. And I think most of the awards that we've won have that in mind. You know, they're, they're very mindful of who we serve, the value that we've delivered to them. Um, they often interview our customers to determine whether or not we're viable candidates to receive these awards. So I, I think that's, you know, that's what's allowed us to be on the receiving end of some of these accolades. So you've also been advising uh, Navista since April, and they're all about sustainable business management. Um, can you chat a little bit more about that role? Um, and how you weave that into, or weave in your marketing expertise, excuse me. Yeah, this is a new experience for me. I'm, I'm advising Navisto. I was uh, interested to do that because they're a Canadian startup and I'm Canadian and I care, you know, they're, they're servicing, you know, they're global, uh, their footprint is global, but they're based in Canada and founded in Canada. And, you know, I've been just very fortunate in my career and want to be able to support younger, uh, younger startups on the scene, although although Navisto has been around for a few years and they have a great customer base. And they were at a point where they were starting to think about doubling down on their marketing strategy and reached out and it was a good fit, very exciting market. Um, so uh, that was of interest to me, something that I had never done before. So I mentioned to you what gets me excited is, you know, kind of the unknown and how do I stretch? And so this was a very unfamiliar but exciting market to me. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, obviously my priority is live person and the impact that I have there, but it's a, it, they've hired a very talented marketing leader at Navisto and uh, it's exciting to me to, to help him a little bit and support him as he stretches and grows as a leader. So it's been a very gratifying experience and they're doing something really interesting and exciting. Exactly. And I think it's just, um, if you can, why not? Yeah. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day. Honestly. I mean, I set clear boundaries. I was like, I can give you a few hours a month. That's it. And it can't interfere with work. Like we had to really sort of set up those rules of engagement, but they were super respectful and grateful. And, and so far it's been a, it's been a great relationship. Of course. Yes, I'm sure. It's, it's amazing. Um, and congratulations for that as well. Thank you. Um, so given your two decade run, what nuggets of wisdom would you drop for newbies that's entering the marketing scene now, especially in tech? I would say always be curious. You know, even when you feel you've mastered something, it provided you aspire to, you know, position of leadership. Like if, if there's nothing wrong with, being a writer and wanting to stay a writer for the rest of your career. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but provided you're talking about marketers who are new on the scene, who really want to grow in their career and, and get to a position of leadership, 
it's that curiosity that's going to get you there. Don't get too hung up on the title or the even the compensation, even though I absolutely believe compensation matters. For me, the driver was always, what new things am I going to get to do? What new things am I going to get to learn? How will I be able to stretch? Who am I going to learn from within the organization? So I think that, you know, having those things top of mind will or will allow your career to organically evolve um, in a positive way. So that would be one piece of advice. And then I would say know your superpower. Everybody has at least one superpower that sort of is like an innate part of what they're able to do. For me, it was writing. Um, for other people, it might be design. For others, it might be operations or metrics. Everybody has a superpower. Figure out what it is early and use that as a wedge to, you know, get the jobs that are interesting to you, but don't get stuck in, you know, in that world where, you know, you're, you're naturally very capable. Be curious. Yeah. It goes back to the first thing. Be curious, stretch, always look for other things to learn. Exactly. Because you never know what you're going to find, right? That's right. Oh, and one more. Turn yeah. to the data to inform your strategy. I feel like we're bringing the whole conversation full circle. <laughs> That's okay. That's perfect. I mean, if, that is actually really good advice that you're giving as well. Like, it's right. I mean, we're looking at the data, we're seeing the results, and there we know how, where we can fine tune it. So that really is, I think, like you said yourself, a very big part of marketing. Um, so as we're like starting to wrap up now, what's brewing for live persons marketing in the near future? So we have a very exciting product launch coming in the next few months, and my team is very much aligned in service of that launch. We're, we're bringing to market, uh, I think, a game-changing suite of analytics and insights solutions um, that will draw from the value of generative AI um, and will arm large brands with what they need to run their business uh, when it comes to conversational AI. So I am very excited about that. Um, there's a lot of opportunity on the horizon. We continue to make investments in generative AI. Um, and, uh, but right now we're, we're focused on this launch, which will take place, uh, in November, lots of information coming on the live person website. Um, and you know, in the near term, that's, that's what's most top of mind for us. Always, always looking at how we can deliver pipeline. <laughs> yeah, that's super exciting. Um, now finally, Ruth. Uh, with all of this talk around generative AI uh, and AI tools, do you have any predictions on where digital marketing is headed? Ah, that's a great question. I'm not usually good at making predictions. <laughs> I do think that jobs are going to change and that, you know, that's, that's maybe a, a a provocative statement, although, you know, I'm sure everybody is thinking about that. I don't know that jobs are going to go away, but I think jobs are going to change. So as a writer, um, I would hope that writers start to lean in more to the power of generative AI to even like get them started in a writing exercise. We no longer um, have to write those drafts necessarily for all things that we do. The drafts can be automatically generated from great information. So I think that we're going to see jobs like writers, designers change. I, I don't believe they're going to go away. I think you will always need a person 
um, you know, taking that starting point, that draft and turning it into something resonant and beautiful and powerful, tailored, personalized to your audience, um, at, at least over the next few years, I think that's going to be the case. But I think it's really important that marketers start to familiarize themselves with how these, how these, uh, capabilities can help them to be more efficient, more effective, um, and how their jobs can be improved as a result. Exactly. And just streamline processes, to be honest. I think that's what we're that's really right. doing these days. Is, Absolutely. You know, it helps with productivity and it still needs people. It still needs us, writers, editors, everybody to still check that content and um, fine tune it to your own voice and style and everything 100%. we do this we do this fun thing on uh, the podcast that i host generation ai um yeah. where for every guest we write a an ai generated or we have ai generate a song at the start of the podcast all about the guest which is very cool but I will say none of these are songs that we would ever listen to. No, <laughs> so it, it, it's like been very reassuring to me that, you know, songwriters will still have their jobs <laughs> is my suspicion. So. Exactly. I might steal that from you, actually. That sounds like as long, a as, we're credit, as, long as we're credited, go right ahead. <laughs> we'll definitely do that. Um, Ruth, thank you so much for joining us today really really i i deeply appreciate it um and this was great really thank, thank you, you so, so much here. thank you so much for having me this was a pleasure um thank it's you. great it's great to meet with you chat about the things that are near and dear to my heart and uh i hope people will enjoy it and that's it for today's episode if you're looking for an ai or software development company for your next project we're here to help visit designrush.com marketplace our marketplace offers a curated selection of agencies that can provide the solutions you need to turn your dream project into a reality. Again, I'm your host, Bianca Mayer. Stay curious and join us for the next episode.